please open your Bibles to 1 Peter. It's always a privilege to open God's Word together, because here at the Bible Church, we understand that the Holy Scriptures we hold before us is inspired from our Lord. God used Peter to record here in this letter exactly what he wanted. At the outset of this study, you'll remember months ago, I mentioned how scholars who recognize Peter's authorship of this letter will typically date it to the early 60s, and not the, uh, not the 1960s, okay? This is the 60s, just the 60s AD, during the reign of Emperor Nero. And that's significant because many believe then that Peter wrote this letter not long before, perhaps within a year's time, of the great fire of Rome and the persecution that Nero would inflict upon the church. So you can imagine God's providential timing as Peter writes to encourage these Christians scattered across Asia Minor. The pressure is already mounting. The antagonism is growing as more and more people learn that of this new Christian sect, this new Christian belief, and how people, these Christians, people, they're just so different. We don't like their message. We don't like their lifestyle. We don't like what they stand for. But who could know? In the midst of all this, who could know exactly what suffering would come? Only God would know. And surely the terrific storm that would break loose upon the Christians in Rome would certainly have an impact upon Christians in other parts of the empire, like those Peter's writing to here. Surely if we ourselves were to only know the suffering and the trials and the tests of our faith that lie ahead in the future, we would take seriously the words that Peter has to us this morning. So let's stand together as we read our text, 1 Peter chapter 4. Our text is verses 1 through 6. There the word of God says, Therefore, since Christ has suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same purpose. Because he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live the rest of the time in the flesh no longer for the lusts of men, but for the will of God. For the time already past is sufficient for you to have carried out the desire of the Gentiles, having pursued a course of sensuality, lusts, drunkenness, carousing, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. In all this, they are surprised that you do not run with them into the same excesses of dissipation, and they malign you, but they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For the gospel for that has for this purpose been preached, even to those who are dead, that though they are judged in the flesh as men, they may live in the spirit according to the will of God. That's the reading of God's word. You may be seated. Let's ask our Lord to bless his word to our ears and hearts this morning. Almighty Father, you know our weaknesses you know the dangers and the trials which lie ahead of us, each and every person here. You know that if those trials were to come to us right now, who would remain faithful to you and who would not? Father, we need you to prepare us for what is to come. We need you to prepare us for that moment of temptation. We know the spirit is willing, but the flesh surely is weak. We thank you that you have given us your Holy Spirit. You have given us your word to guide us into truth. And we pray that you would equip your church for the battle that is to come. 
Father, if there be anybody in our midst who doesn't know Christ, they're not ready for the judgment, we pray that you would speak to their heart too, that they may be prepared to meet the judge of all the earth who is our Lord. And we pray in his name, in the name of Jesus, amen. No one takes so seriously preparation as soldiers do. This is, of course, because soldiers understand that their life and the lives of their comrades in battle and the lives of really all they're fighting to protect depends upon their preparedness in battle. But seasoned veterans understand that preparing for combat is far more than simply a matter of gearing up, simply a matter of having the right weapons and and ammunition and body armor and so forth. Soldiers understand the importance of also preparing the mind. When the shooting begins, veterans tell us things never go according to plan. The mission gets messy. The struggle for life gets extremely intense. So that it can seem for a moment as if you've stepped into an entirely different world and the unprepared are extremely disoriented. This is why the U.S. military has developed programs like Battle Mind Training, which aims to train soldiers, to equip them how to face fear and adversity and danger, incredible danger, with courage. And it's this image of a soldier preparing for battle, particularly preparing the mind for the conflict to come. That's the image that we see here in our text. When Peter says in verse 1, arm yourselves also with the same purpose. He uses the Greek word hoplizo, from where we get the word uh, hoplite. And maybe from ancient history, you remember that hoplites were a form of a soldier. It was a kind of a soldier the ancient Greeks developed in infantrymen. So hoplizo was a military term. And in light of the hostility that is arising about, around the early church here toward Christians, Peter's calling his Christian readers to arm up, to prepare, to get ready as if for battle, No, not for, of course, physical combat, but for this trial, this real suffering that is to come for the sake of their faith in Christ. Their faith is going to be tested. And I believe we can be more specific to say Peter's calling Christians here to prepare the mind for suffering. He here talks about preparing yourselves with the right kind of purpose. Do you see that? He's talking about a preparation that is internal, one that has to do with our purpose, our mindset, what we're living for, what our focus lies upon. And the rest of the passage will make that more clear. Actually, though, I will remind you that in chapter 1, verse 13, Peter's already said that we are to prepare our minds for action. And so in light of all this, I just want to mention at the outset, today's marching orders from our Lord, our Commander-in-Chief, are really to prepare your mind for suffering. Prepare your mind to suffer for the will of God. And in verses 1 through 6, Peter supplies four reasons why you are to prepare your mind to suffer for the will of God. The first reason he gives is found in verse 1. It is because Christ himself has suffered in the flesh. Verse 1 begins, therefore, Since Christ has suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same purpose. Of course, the word therefore points us back to everything Peter's just said before. Remember, at the end of chapter 3, he's just discussed how Christ himself suffered. He suffered in the flesh. He suffered and triumphed through suffering. Suffering didn't defeat Christ. 
It was his means of saving us. It was his means of triumphing over the curse of sin. But two questions arise here. First, why does Peter specifically uh, tell us that Christ suffered in the flesh? Why does he take the pains to specify that? Well, for one thing, and this should remind us that Christ came in the flesh. This is certainly very important. The fact that Christ did come in the flesh reminds us of Jesus' humanity. He experienced all the things that we experience and all the sufferings we suffer. And infinitely more, we can say, because Christ suffered for us the wrath of God. He suffered the wrath of God for all who believe. But ultimately, I believe that by reminding us that Christ has suffered in the flesh, Peter's reminding us of a limitation here, a limitation to Christ's shame and suffering, that the suffering Christ endured was only with respect to his flesh. Understand, Jesus' enemies believed sincerely that they had defeated him. They had crushed him because they crucified his body and they put him to death. I think we can put this together because in chapter 3, verse 18, Peter says that Christ was put to death in the flesh. In the flesh. It seemed he was defeated. But later on, we're going to see in verse 6 of our text in chapter 4 here, that Peter's going to go on to describe how that though someone, namely believers, can be judged in the flesh, in the body, as men, by men, yet they may live in the spirit according to the will of God. The point is that even though Christ suffered, yes, in the flesh, that's true. He was shamed in the flesh, that's true. Yet, he triumphed through all that. And in the same way, believers will suffer in the flesh. Peter wants you to know that. And, of course, then there's something encouraging there, just like Christ suffered in the flesh, but triumphed. We who suffer in the flesh can triumph, too, for the sake of Christ. So the, the phrase, in the flesh, is important, but we must also ask, what has Christ's suffering got to do with my life? Isn't that usually what it all comes down to? What does this have to do with me? Why do I care? Well, I think, unfortunately, many, many people in the world really couldn't answer that question, or at least wouldn't care to. It makes no difference to them at all that Jesus suffered. They don't give a rip about that. And many, many more still in the world do care, and they will tell you that they care much about Jesus' suffering. They would tell you that when they saw Mel Gibson's Passion of the Christ, that they wept. And this was deeply moving for them. But I hope it's understandable to you that just because somebody can be moved at the thought of the sufferings of Christ, that, that's not a sure proof of the filling of the Holy Spirit. That doesn't mean you're a true child of God. Anybody can be moved to see the suffering of another human being. Peter's talking here when he talks about Christ's suffering of something far deeper far deeper than simply a change of emotion. He's not simply after playing with your feelings, getting tears out of you. What is he calling for here? Peter says, since Christ has suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same purpose. He's saying because you believe that Christ has suffered in the flesh for you, essentially, that's what this letter in chapter 2 and 3 is made so plain, Christ has suffered for our sins, therefore, this suffering ought to change the way we live and think. Your approach to life ought to be different. You ought to think differently than people in the world who just go about life, do whatever they want to do with their life, because you truly believe Christ has suffered in the flesh for you. Has that changed your life? Peter has actually given us a command here. He's saying, I'm not asking you, I'm not just suggesting, I'm telling you. This is a command, arm yourselves with the same purpose. What same purpose? He's saying with the same purpose Christ had. 
Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, Philippians 2.5. What purpose is this that Christ purposed? Well, Philippians 2.8 tells us that Christ was obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. And it doesn't take much more than just a precursory study of the Gospels to realize that Christ's purpose was all about fulfilling the will of God, wasn't it? It was all about the will of the Father. Whatever the cost, whatever the difficulty, whatever the circumstances, whatever what anybody said against Christ, it didn't matter to him. He was about the will of the Father to the point of death, even the death and shame of the cross. And so this is a good time to ask ourselves, how has Christ's suffering, how is Christ's suffering actually impacting your life, the way you think, the way you approach your everyday activities. Peter's already told us in 1 Peter 2.21, for you have been called, now talking to believers again, people who have put their faith in Christ, and he says, you have been called for this purpose, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. There you have it. If you love Jesus, if you want to follow Christ, he's saying, the way leads to Christ. The way that Christ has led is the way of the cross. It's a way of suffering. Forget trying to live in bubble wrap. Forget trying to live this suffer-free life. Forget thinking that you can somehow follow Jesus and avoid the cross at the end. Because it's the way of the cross. This is the way our Lord has, the trail that he has blazed for us. Christ's suffering is a call to prepare to suffer for his sake. Since Christ has suffered in the flesh, Peter says, we are to arm ourselves also with the same purpose, purposing to do God's will no matter the cost. And don't forget, well, Peter's just told us about Jesus' suffering at, at the end of chapter 3. He did mention, and it was his whole emphasis, that Christ triumphed in that. So with this call to suffer as Christ suffered, it's also an encouragement then. There should be an implied encouragement here. Christ triumphed in his suffering. We will too, if we follow him. If we purpose the same purpose in life he did. So the first reason Peter supplies is basic. Why you must prepare your mind to suffer for the will of God? Well, it's because Christ suffered in the flesh. But the second reason he supplies why you must prepare your mind to suffer for the will of God is that suffering for Christ proves your break with sin. Suffering for Christ proves your break with sin. Verse 1, he says, Therefore, since Christ has suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same purpose, because he who has suffered in the flesh, has ceased from sin. Notice the battle for which we are preparing has to do with battling against sin. That is the battle. Remaining loyal to Jesus over what my fleshly body desires. Now, there are some differences as to how to interpret this text, and so I just want to be sure to explain what Peter does not mean. When he says, he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, he's not suggesting that we could somehow arrive in this life at sinless perfection. So that we're just going to be perfect. We're never going to sin. We just suffer a little bit. You know, we're, we're going to arrive at the point where we no more sin in this life. The problem with that kind of an interpretation is that the Bible plainly says, if we say we have no sin, we're deceiving ourselves. And the truth is not in us. 1 John 1, 8. Sanctification is a process. It's a process that begins the moment you trust Christ, and it does not end until we receive glorified bodies, officially. And so, uh, others have said, well, you know, Peter's speaking generally here. He's giving you a proverb. 
so as to say that suffering changes our perspective on life, including diminishing our desires for sin. And I think there's some truth here. For instance, many people seem to get more serious about God, do they not? When they're going through suffering, when it's a season of suffering, I mean, at least momentarily, suffering will get your attention. The Bible says in Ecclesiastes 7.2 that it is better to go to the house of mourning than to a house of feasting. Which is to say that bitter suffering that brings tears does have some advantages over the merriment we enjoy at a party. It will do good for a lot of people, especially young people today, to meet with some suffering. Wake up. Realize, because pain is a good teacher, what's important in life and what's not. And pain is a way of keenly showing us that. But I don't think this is what Peter's saying here. Because we cannot say that suffering necessarily diminishes our desire for sin. There are many people who suffer immensely. And they become very bitter. And these hurting people hurt. They make it their job to hurt other people. And they harden their heart. And they become very calloused and bitter at God and vengeful at God. No, suffering does not always make us saints. Suffering itself doesn't make us saints. It doesn't give anyone victory over sin, not suffering itself. And by the same token, no one is less a saint simply because they haven't suffered as much as the next guy. So Peter's not saying simply suffering, uh, suffering just gives you victory over sin. That's not what he's saying. What Peter really seems to be saying here is that the one suffering for righteousness, for the sake of Christ, is victorious over sin. And if we want to properly understand that, we want to just properly understand any of Peter's words. We have to read them in the context in which Peter gave them. So let's do that. When we do that, we discover the only kind of suffering that Peter's consistently been calling us to embrace is a suffering for what's right. For instance, in chapter 3, verse 14, Peter says, but even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed. Down in verse 17, chapter 3, for it is better if God should will it so that you suffer for doing what is right rather than for doing what is wrong. Peter's not telling us to go out and just try to get crucified, try to suffer. No, he's actually been discouraging suffering for what is wrong. He's saying if you're going to suffer, suffer for what is right. That's what uh, Christ wants us to be about. But that is, suffering for righteousness is a theme throughout his letter. And so the suffering that defeats sin here is suffering for Jesus' sake. That should be plain to us. Peter doesn't need to qualify that anymore because that's already been the thrust of his letter. And let's just think about how this works then in everyday life. In his book, Resurrection Life in a World of Suffering, D.A. Carson tells the following story. It absolutely riveted me. He says, there was a man who had an impressive background in a church in England. He was raised in a Christian home. He had Christian siblings. He was a well-behaved kid. He had an early interest in the things of God. He went to the university of Edinburgh to become a medical doctor. He led the local campus ministry group. He married the right girl from the right Christian home. He then became a missionary to North Africa and spent many years there serving. Carson writes, when I first met him, he had left North Africa and moved to Cambridge, England, where he practiced medicine while pursuing specialist training in public health. Doubtless his missionary experience and his fair knowledge of scripture assured that it wasn't long before he became an elder in the church. And then, out of the blue as it was, he announced he was leaving his wife and two children and taking up with his nurse. 
No one saw it coming. The pastor and others spoke with him. His attitude at this time was dominantly, why are you picking on me? I don't see anything wrong. I don't see that I'm doing anything wrong. To make a long story short, he divorced his wife and moved up north with his nurse. So Carson says, about a year later, I was riding in a car with the pastor heading to a conference, and I asked him, so what went wrong with this fellow? What didn't we see? How do you explain what happened? He replied, Don, I'm convinced that he, this individual, just wasn't a Christian. I said, come again? He was a missionary in North Africa, complete with leprosy, heat, flies, self-sacrifice. All of that Christian experience, not a Christian? He knew the creeds. He was a Christian leader, an elder in the church. What do you mean, not a Christian? On what basis do you say that? The pastor said, I have gone over his life again and again, and I cannot find any significant places in his life where his faith cost him anything. He grew up as an eager-to-please kid, made a profession of faith, and was cheered by his family for doing so. He became a doctor. Oh, everybody cheered. He fell in love with a charming young woman. Everybody cheered again. Married her. Excellent. They went to Africa as missionaries. More approval. He served in a leprosarium. Cheers for the self-sacrifice. When they returned to their country, they found a good church, and he was appointed an elder. More approbation. At no point, said my friend, the pastor, can I find any place in his life where he made a decision to do something difficult, a decision taken not because he wanted to, but because it was right, a decision he didn't want to take because he knew that it was going to cost him something. He just went along and at every point did what he wanted to do. And he was cheered for his choices. And so when he found this pretty nurse, he did what he always did. He did what he wanted to do. And now he is the one who is surprised because nobody is cheering. That's riveting. There are many people today who do not believe in Jesus Christ. They'd be the first to deny him. They are infidels. They are non-believers according to the Bible. But they're all about humanitarian works. There is a sense of satisfaction people find in doing things, even, as they would say, to serve the Lord. And it is so easy for us to pledge allegiance to Jesus Christ, but are we prepared to suffer for his sake? Are we prepared to take up our cross, deny ourselves, take up our cross, and follow him? That's what Jesus wanted to know. And he said, if you don't do that, you cannot, you cannot, you cannot be my disciple. The question is not, do we say we love Jesus, and not even do we serve Jesus in any way? The question is, what do we do when the choice is simply Jesus or self? Suffering for Christ or gratifying self? Getting what I want, pursuing my way. It's what our faith costs that proves its worth. A faith that costs nothing is worth nothing. It's one thing to, to be willing to follow Christ whenever it's convenient, whenever it's popular. But it's the one who's willing to suffer in the flesh and give up all for Jesus' sake. That's the brother or sister that Peter's talking about here that overcomes sin. I like how the NIV says it. They are done with sin. Doesn't mean they're perfect, but it means that is their resolution. They have finished with sin. They are done with it. 
And Peter can say that because the believer who loves Jesus to endure genuine suffering in the body is the believer who's willing to deny his sinful desires. But you mark my words when it comes to when suffering comes to this nation, when suffering comes to churches like this, there will be some, undoubtedly, there will be some who now join us that no longer will. Some will leave. Some always have. This is nothing new to the legacy of Christianity. Some will forsake us just like they forsook Christ. They will forsake us like Demas, having loved this present world. So Peter says, prepare your mind to suffer for the will of God because Christ suffered for us and because suffering for Christ proves your break with sin. But a third reason why you must prepare your mind to suffer for the will of God is because the Christian life is about the will of God. We see that in verses 2 through 4. Peter's been showing us the need to prepare the mind for suffering. And now he gives us here in verse 2 more of the aim behind this preparation. Verse 2, so as, prepare your mind to suffer, so as to live the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for the lusts of men, but for the will of God. He's saying the Christian life is about fulfilling the will of God, not pleasing yourself, not getting what you want. Notice here, there's just two opposing ways to live. Peter's simple about it. Two opposing ways that Peter marks with two opposing signs so that you can recognize them in your own life. The first sign says, selfish human desires, we might say. I know the New American Standard reads, the lusts of men, but the word translated men here is the generic Greek term anthropos. It just means humanity, human. And the word translated lust typically means forbidden desires, desiring that which God has forbidden. And so the first way that Peter marks off for us to the left here is marked by a sign that says, selfish human desires, my way. The my way highway. It's what I want. And the other side over against this, leading to the right, this other way, is marked with a sign that says the will of God. This marks the way God is calling his people to follow, of course. But as the context suggests, or shows us, it's according to the will of God that we suffer. That's exactly what Peter, 1 Peter 4.19 is going to go on to say. This is the way of suffering. It's the Via Dolorosa. It's the way of the cross. Walking this way of life will cost you. You're not just going to get what you want from God. It doesn't work that way. It's going to mean giving your life for Christ. Giving your life for God. Jesus said in Matthew 7 that the first road is broad and the gate is wide and many people are going that way, but it suddenly drops off to destruction. And Jesus said over against that way, there's a narrow way, with a narrow gate. And there are few that find it, but it's the way that leads to true life. That's what Jesus said. My point is, you can't travel both ways. Not at the same time. Which way are you on? Which road are you on? Where are you headed? You're either on the broad way or the narrow way. Or as 1 John 2.15 tells us, if you choose to love this world's allurement, if this is where your heart is, in pursuing the gratification of the flesh and everything you want out of this world. And that's what you're about. John says, if that's where your love is, the love of the Father isn't in you. You don't love God. That's Bible. That's not me up here making up rules or anything. That's Bible. Peter says you need to live the rest of your life then, your earthly time, 
no longer for the lusts of men, but for the will of God. Because he says, your past life on that road of self, about self-pleasing, getting approval from the world, he says, that past life spent indulging in sinful pleasure, it's over. Look at verse 3. For the time already past is sufficient for you. It's enough for you to have carried out the desire of the Gentiles, having pursued a course of sensuality, lust, drunkenness, carousing, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. The term Gentiles that he uses here is the Greek word ethnos in the New Testament that uh, often, well, I mean, when it's used in a negative sense, it's referring to those who do not worship Israel's God. Right? So it's not about just not being a Jew ethnically. This is about having nothing to do with the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The God has revealed himself in Jesus Christ. This is the world. These are the pagans. They are the godless. And Peter lists some of the more obvious sins that characterize this world's, this pagan world's way of having a blast. Sensuality and lusts, first of all. I don't think I really need to qualify or explain that for you. That's everywhere we look. It's all over the modern entertainment choices. And it's certainly all around us, all the time, and the people that we know and love. To this, Peter adds drunkenness, carousing, and drinking parties. It's pretty much the nightlife of the godless youth, isn't it? It's a crowd that comes out at night to indulge in things that are too shameful without the cover of night and the numbing effects of drugs and alcohol. Sometimes it's just impressive, isn't it? How descriptive the Bible is of this ancient world. It's like this could have been written yesterday or today. But Peter adds, and abominable idolatries. Because in the first century, pagan religious cult practices were often incorporated into these parties, into the nightlife. I mean, you go to the club then, and they throw a little bit of their pagan religion in. For instance, the cult of Dionysus involved these drinking parties, just binging. And that was part of the worship. Or it might involve eating meat offered to idols, or offering sacrifices to the gods, or ritual prostitution. This was not uncommon in the first century world. Nevertheless, Peter says, the time when you, you who want to follow Christ, you who say you're a Christian, you who say you believe, he says, the time when you carried out the desire of your pagan neighbors, that's over. That's behind you. It's in the past. He says, the time already passed is sufficient. You've wasted enough time already. It's time to stop indulging in selfish pleasure. As Paul would say in Philippians 3.13, it's time to forget what's behind. It's time to press forward and reach for what's ahead. It's time to make something of what's left in the game and do something for Christ. But notice the world's reaction in verse 4. In all this, in all of your break with sin, trying to leave that behind, they are surprised that you do not run with them into the same excesses of dissipation and they malign you. The world can see you're different now. Anytime you are and you live for Christ, the world will notice. People will notice. And how do people typically react when you won't do the selfish, sinful things that you used to do or they want to do? Peter says they are surprised, first of all. Surprised that you do not eagerly plunge headfirst into those same sinful activities. Why? Because that's fun. That's what you do. What else do you do on a Friday night? Come on, man. What else are we going to watch? What's wrong with you? So they're surprised. And when you do not join them, they malign you. 
They malign you. That is, they hurl abusive words at you. Ever experienced that? I've experienced this. Many of us have experienced this for the sake of Christ. When I first began pursuing ministry, I joined my pastor in preaching on New York City street corners. And I will tell you, it was quite an experience. <laughs> Whatever anyone thinks of you, I can say one thing's for certain. You can hardly do anything to identify yourself more publicly with the name of Christ than preaching his name in a New York City street corner. And so I'm just saying, whatever you think of that, let me tell you, it will cure you of closet Christianity. Are you a closet Christian? I have an immediate cure. Get out there and talk about Jesus on the street. Instant cure. Because in such a contested and public space, things immediately get real. And I mean, if you are a real Christian, let's be real. Well, I guess Milwaukee is known for its bars and pub crawl. And so years ago, I was there with some Christian friends and we prayed and we went downtown one Friday night where everybody was doing the pub crawl and we began preaching the gospel, one after the other, right there on the street. And when people saw us, I think, I think they thought they'd already had too much to drink. Uh, either that or they thought we did. But uh, they were in shock. They were... And aside from the shock, they hurled many abusive words and some mocked. But we had such incredible opportunities with some souls that night, we decided to do it again and again and again. And then one night, we were preaching outside a club. And as we were preaching across the street, it seemed that everyone standing in line to enter the club was laughing. But there was one person, the bouncer, his name was Eli, who was listening. And we didn't learn this until afterward, but Eli came under such conviction at what he was hearing that he went into the bar and began preaching to everyone in the bar to shut up, listen to the preachers, they're telling you the truth. Eli later gave his life to Christ. Last I heard, he was attending a large church in the area. In our text, Peter's saying, Christians must accept the fact that this world is going to misunderstand you if you're going to follow Christ. They're going to be shocked at you. They're not, they're not going to applaud you. Not if you're doing what's right. Because it's exposing the evil in them. It's exposing the fact that they're not on the way of life. They don't have the truth. People don't like that. And he says, furthermore, they're going to malign you. That can include a lot of things. More than just verbal abuse, like many brothers and sisters across this world are experiencing right now as I speak for the sake of Christ. But that is not to say, all of that is not to say that God is not also working. It is a shame that many times we, we tend to judge, at least Christians in America, tend to judge the success of a church by how their message is received by the community. And I have to say, that was never and is never, according to the Bible, the standard of success. God may be working and is working when people are shocked and malign you. And he will bring people to himself even in such a situation. We're swimming against a powerful current. We hear stories of brothers and sisters deciding just to go along with the culture. Stop fighting. Christians deciding to just go along with the culture, attend the nightclubs, attend the gay weddings, show support for gay pride rallies. We ought to love all the people. We understand that. That's what the Bible commands us. But never to hide the light. And that's what the deceiver wants. Because what good is a lighthouse against the rocks? when it's not shining light into the darkness? Is your life different from the people around you? The 
Christian life is about one thing Peter's showing us. One thing. The will of God. The Christian life is about the will of God. That's what Jesus boiled his purpose down to. He said, when asked, my meat is to do the will of him who sent me. I live by that. Do you live by the will of God? The Christian life is about the will of God. Not giving you the trouble-free life, not making you popular in this world. Seriously, if we want to follow Christ, we have to get over the popularity contest. And we just need to follow Jesus. So prepare your mind to suffer for the will of God. Peter's saying, because Christ suffered for us, and because suffering for Christ proves your break with sin and... The Christian life is about the will of God. But lastly, a fourth reason from our text why you must prepare your mind to suffer for the will of God is because all will one day appear before the judge. That's what he's saying in verses 5 and 6. Yes, some will mock and abuse you, but verse 5 explains, but they, those who are shocked, those who oppose you, they malign you, he says they will give an account themselves. To him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. And the effect of these words then are, don't fear your acquaintances. Don't fear your neighbors. Don't fear your governors. Don't fear those who oppose you. Why would you fear those who shame you? Why would you back down from the will of God? This world's approval won't mean anything in the last day. Do you remember that sticker you got in the first grade for drawing a nice circle? Do you remember that sticker? Yeah? Of course you do. Do you remember that sticker you got when you were like five at the dentist's office because you didn't bite his fingers? You're sticking your fingers in your mouth? Do you remember that? Of course you remember that sticker, right? Let me ask you, where are those stickers right now? How much do those stickers mean to you? I guarantee you nobody came into this room thinking about those stickers that you earned in the first grade. Surely. So let me ask, what does this world's affirmation and approval mean to you? What does it mean in the end? Is it anything more than a sticker? There are some things in this world that that, that this world offers us and we seek all our time and attention for. There are some in this world who call themselves Christians, but they're selling their time. They're exchanging time They're selling their testimony for Christ. In a sense, they're selling their very souls for a sticker. A label this world gives them. And these stickers might say cool or popular, approved, celebrity status, VIP, worldly wise, whatever. It makes us feel good to wear them because we want men's approval, don't we? And we despise being shamed. And they'll slap all kinds of other stickers on you when you take a stand for Jesus. Fool, loser, and so on. But Peter's calling us to consider those who escape suffering and shame won't escape the judgment. You can have all this world's stickers, but you're going to stand before God. That's not going to cover you. That's not going to take care of you in the day of judgment. Because all of us, the living and the dead, dead or alive, he's saying, will one day give an account to Christ as our judge. And in that day, the measure of your devotion to Christ is all that will matter. That is biblical. In the end, on the day of judgment, there's only one thing that matters. The measure of your devotion to Christ. Think about that. Peter further explains in verse 6, For the gospel has for this purpose been preached, even to those who are dead. Presumably these are 
believers who are now dead, that though they are judged in the flesh as men, they may live in the spirit according to the will of God. This text is admittedly tricky to interpret. For sake of time, I can't go into all the different views, but I believe Peter's saying that these judged, those judged here in the body by men can still have life with God in the spirit. I understand the text here to say the gospel has been preached even to those believers, these are believers here, who are now dead. They are dead in the flesh. Presumably that is because they have been judged by the world. They, he, he says, they have, though they have been judged in the flesh as men, the judgments of this world have terminated their very life. The world can do that. They are able to kill the body. But he says, though they are judged in the flesh as men, or as the NIV has it, according to human standards in regard to the body, yet they may live in the spirit according to the will of God. Although your body may be destroyed by the judgments of this world. They could do that to you. You say, oh, it's more than slapping labels on me. I'm worried about them taking my body. Yeah, they can kill you. They can make your exit of this world very miserable. But that's it. They cannot harm your soul. Jesus said, Matthew 10, 28, do not fear those who kill the body, but are unable to kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to kill both body and soul in hell. That's what Jesus said. You're going to stand before God. Do you think about this much? We need to approach suffering like Jesus did. 1 Peter 2.23, he continually kept entrusting himself to the one who judges righteously. Jesus knew. The Father has my back. The Father approves me. That's whose approval I need. That's all that matters in the end. That's where our focus needs to be. That's our purpose. That's how we need to arm our minds for the battle to come. Leave judgment with God. In the end, when all said and done, that's all that matters. Prepare your mind to suffer for the will of God. So Christian, how are you doing? How are you doing? Are you preparing to suffer for the cause of Christ? Trials, temptations, the battles come in all shapes and sizes. How are we preparing? How are we handling? Are you getting ready for when your faith is to be tested? Maybe you're here and you're very popular with your family and your neighbors and all your acquaintances, basically all those at work, folks at work. You're popular everywhere you go. Everybody knows you. Have you ever taken a stand for Christ? Are you willing to sell popularity for the name of Jesus? Maybe you're popular with everybody you know, but you're not certain about the state of your relationship with God. Is anything more important than that? If that's you, don't neglect the most important relationship of all. If you're troubled, if you're here today and you say, I'm troubled, I, I don't have peace about standing before the judge of all the earth. I don't, I'm, I don't know that I'm ready to meet my maker. If that is you, uh, just understand, if you have any questions or concerns, that's what this church is here for. <laughs> that's why God gave us the word of God, so that we could come to assurance and peace in the Lord Jesus Christ and be ready to stand before our Lord covered and the forgiveness and righteousness of Jesus Christ. So if you need any help or counsel, we'd love to help you from the word of God. Let's pray.